Hello and welcome to another edition of the Standard Room Only Podcast. Yes, I am your host, Ben Standing, and I cover the Washington football team for The Athletic, which means I'm talking about Washington's expanded COVID list. Two more players go on today. One comes off. The number is at 10 going into a huge game against the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, not a great situation for Washington. Um, lots to get to. Going to do that today with guest Matt Parrish from the Washington Times. Matt and I recorded the podcast earlier today, but I was anticipating while we were talking that some of these names might drop. They came later. They are Kendall Fuller and Tim Settle. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but Matt and I talked about kind of where we were at that point uh, earlier to, earlier Tuesday afternoon. Uh, we, we got into, you know, obviously kind of the roster overall, where things stand right now with both the COVID situations, the injuries, uh, kind of where this team is at right now. Also talked a bit about Curtis Samuel, the confusing remarks from Ron Rivera uh, the other day uh, on, on Monday with regards to why Samuel didn't play more than 14 snaps. And there's new there's new uh, stories out about Dan Snyder and the investigation into Washington's, Washington's culture and a really interesting anecdote regarding Snyder. Um, wanting a text from Bruce Allen. So Matt and I will get to all that. Plus, we talked a little bit about the Wizards as well for people who are interested in that. In addition to that, we're not done yet. I talked to ESPN college uh, NFL draft analyst uh, Jordan Reed. Not the player, the, the draft analyst, Jordan Reed. Uh, we talked the other day, and because obviously, you know, there will be a draft at some point. We discussed uh, the th- Things that are pertinent both to the Washington football team, but also the draft overall, which bowl games to keep an eye on this week for players that could be interesting. Yes, we talked a bunch about the quarterbacks, but we talked a bunch more fun conversation with Jordan Reed from ESPN. So we'll get to all that in a second. Uh, a busy week, of course, here covering the Washington football team for The Athletic. You can, of course, subscribe to this podcast and listen to everything, including my interview after the, de- the loss to Dallas with Grant Paulson from 106.7 The Fan. Um, you can do that on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you do your podcasting, including on The Athletic app. You can find on The Athletic my my latest uh, story, uh, both from the game recap of Dallas, but also the uh, sort of where we are right now with this roster and, and the... And, and the dicey situation they're in particularly on defense going into this pivotal game against uh the eagles so uh as i said matt and i talked um i had a little sense that there would be some uh, some more news coming about certain players going to the COVID list didn't exactly know who and found out kendall fuller and tim settle um just uh, there's some other moves as well daryl roberts came off the COVID list and then they bolstered their roster uh nate orchard uh, yes, that Nate Orchard signed to the 53-player roster. They're bringing Jeremy Reeves up from the practice squad, not to the 53, but just to be around for this week because of the COVID situation. Uh, t- tough call overall. Obviously, with Kendall Fuller, Washington's already thin at that cornerback position, right? Uh, Benjamin St. Just is on IR. They lost Torrey McTire earlier in the year. So right now, you're looking at William Jackson and Danny Johnson, who have been sort of staples on the outside and the slot, respectively, and then I don't know. What are we looking at here? Dell Roberts is back. He's a veteran in this league. He's played zero defensive snaps this year. Troy Apke is is just special teams. Corn Elder is around, but he's basically been playing 
he hasn't even been active for games for the most part. Um, you do have a bunch of safeties, obviously, and guys like Bobby McCain, Jeremy Reeves, and Cam Curl in particular have cornerback experience, but it's very different playing, you know, here and there than, you know, hey, you got to play, you know, 50, 60 snaps on the outside covering, you know, <laughs> Devontae Smith or, or whomever. So um, that's going to be a huge challenge for Washington. In addition, and there's no other cornerbacks currently on the practice squad. In addition, the defensive line, you know, look, there would be no good way to say they could get, but you can't say they were going to get by with Jonathan Allen, um, who is currently on the COVID list. But okay, at least with Deron Payne, Matt Ioannidis, and Tim Settle, there's a, you know, a three-person rotation there that, you know, for this one game, should be passable just from that position. It's crazy then to think about it from when you when you're down as thin they are as the defensive end spots. But losing Tim Settle now is another blow. So they are incredibly thin. They only have six defensive linemen right now even available uh, to them on the active roster. We'll see what else they do. They've got a couple other options on the practice squad, but obviously that's not anything that you can say that's that's a great situation. So Matt and I will talk more about the defensive line. I just wanted to at least mention the cornerback situation and the loss of Settle uh, there. So uh, like I said, Matt and I will talk about um, the COVID situation, the going into this Eagles game, uh, kind of just where things stand with this roster overall, and we'll talk some Wizards, uh, what's going on with Bradley Beal, what, what's what been some of the main issues with with going on right now where they went from being, what, 10-3 and three to now having lost 10 of their last 15 games. Um, so, there, yeah, that's a lot going on. Then Jordan Reed and I, we talked about, like I said, the quarterbacks and other, and other players to keep an eye on in this draft class. I really enjoyed uh, all these conversations. I will have another podcast later in this week breaking down more about the Eagles and the NFC race, so don't worry about that. Just make sure you subscribe to the podcast, and you will not miss anything there. Um, all right, so that's it for me here. Let's get to it. We'll start off with um, my conversation with Matt Paris, and then we'll get to Jordan Reed here on the Standard Room Only podcast. Well, let's just get to it, Matt. Again, I appreciate here. Uh, wh- wh- where to begin? We'll, we'll get to the, the – we're talking on Tuesday afternoon. The, the Washington Post story just came out a few minutes ago. We'll get to that part in a second, um, and we'll get to the Wizards as well. Let's start with the the team. Um, As I said, I did the podcast on Sunday night and discussed, you know, how they really were, you know, terrible in the first half and, you know, they've got injuries. And at that point they had five players on the COVID list. And and, and where do they go from here? Heading into a huge game this week against the Eagles, both teams six and seven. Washington is the seventh seed right now in the playoffs, but there's five teams with that record and it's a tenuous situation. And then we get more people, more players on Monday uh, being placed on the COVID list, most notably Jonathan Allen. That means, what, four defensive linemen are on the COVID list? Um, it's possible some or all of them are back for the game in Philadelphia. We're just going to have to go through the pro- – they're going to have to go through the testing process and see, so I'm not even going to speculate on that. But uh, I don't know for you, I've been wondering for weeks, at what point do all the injuries and do all the – and now these COVID situations, when does this all catch up to this team? When does it like they can only do this next best this next man up thing for so long before it becomes a problem? Maybe I think that was partly what happened with Dallas. But what, like, what were you on the idea of man? What what else does this team have to overcome from a health and 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 physical standpoint? No, I mean they're right about there. Certainly, there are teams that have been more injured than Washington this year. You look at the Baltimore Ravens; they've still been able to produce a winning record despite 
losing pretty much their entire secondary. And uh, it's been really, but regardless, it's been really bad for Washington. I mean, to have Keith Ishmael again at center, the fourth string center, you know, they're an injury away from that position to, uh, you know, playing the guy that they picked up yesterday from, I believe my, from Buffalo. Sorry. He was with Miami for a second. And um, it's just a really thin margin of error. And, you know, these are big names too. It's not just the Tyler Larson's of the world. It's, Terry McLaurin has a concussion. Jonathan Allen is, you know, on COVID list now. And Montez Sweat is probably going to be unavailable. And, of course, the quarterback is questionable as well. I mean, I I think we would both say he's probably going to play, but we'll have to see if he practices on Wednesday. And it's not just the knee injury, it's the elbow. And if the elbow, does that – you know, mess up his throwing mechanics and can he still be as accurate because his accuracy was a mess on uh, Sunday against the Cowboys. So they're in a really tough spot and these are must-win games. So it's not looking great. The only thing you could point to is saying, all right, the Eagles, they're still a team that Washington should still be able to beat even with all the team's injuries. The, the, The remaining schedule here is still favorable to them besides Dallas. It's such a, this is what makes the NFL such a weird sport on some level. You and I are both NBA people. If I mean, like right now, the Chicago Bulls, I've lost track of how many how many people they have. Um, I think it's nine or ten. Yeah. Um, all right. So in terms of the, you know, again, so just for people who are, who are a little bit unaware, if a player is vaccinated, and that is the vast majority of Washington's players, um, they have to pass a, they have to have, they have to have a, two negative tests covid coronavirus test come back within essentially a 24-hour period so separated by a day um if they do that then they are eligible to come back and so in the case of jonathan allen james smith williams casey Tuhill, i think those are probably the names we're looking at the most this week because how thin they are on the defensive line uh right now if the, if those three did not come back the team today did sign nate orchard do you remember him i forgot he was on the team last year for a, a, a little bit but um you know he was more memorably for me on the 2019 team um and so he came in he's the he's the seventh defensive lineman i think they would have on the roster if these other three are unavailable so they may still have to do something even beyond that because you know you, you might want to have a little bit more more there so those are the three to keep an eye on there Montez Sweat is also on the list now granted Montez Sweat has not played for over a month because he had the jaw issue he was expected to come back and practice last week the fact that he has been off the field for this long so he last played in the Denver game on Halloween even if he's eligible to come off the the COVID list I just can't even imagine he would play this week I think Ron Rivera kind of left that open when I I think maybe with us and I heard him talking to the sports junkies today, that's to me would seem to be an impossibility, but you know, what do I know? So taking him out, Allen to Hill and, and Smith Williams possible. They play this week, but we're going to have to see as to what the, the degree with the, uh, with the negative testing are beyond that. Um, you know, David Mayo, he actually played more on more on defense this week than he had all year was in on some first downs as Jamie Davis was coming back from a concussion situation. So, from a depth standpoint, they already reached the level of using David Mayo. So to take him off would be, would be a thing. He's also a key on special teams. Um, you got Daryl Roberts is more of a cornerback depth, but I think th- those defensive linemen are the story when it comes 
to this. And, it, and, you know, I guess we'll also have to see, by the way, I mean, at this point now we had, we had play uh, players go on the list on Saturday, Casey Tuhal on Sunday, on Monday, you and I are talking on Tuesday. So we're going to have to see it's, you know, who we'll see if they're out of the woods yet, just based on how things are going. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't say yes. Um, so there's all of that. Uh, we'll get to more of the injuries in a sec. As a reminder, the Eagles are the number one NFL team right now in rushing. So typically, Matt, I don't know how you think about football. Typically, you want to have a stout defensive line going up against a team that likes to run the ball. That's just generally how I like to view the world. So the fact that Washington would be potentially looking at a situation. I mean, it's funny to say that, like, they got to get James Smith-Williams and Casey Tuhill back, two guys who earlier in the year you'd have thought, well, are, you know, <laughs> I mean, we don't even know if they're good enough to be the backups behind Chase Young and Montez, well, let alone you want them on the field. Now it seems like, oh, please get them on the field because what's behind them is just a bunch of guys who are extremely inexperienced. And, and that to me, so anyway, at a base level, we'll get to Heineke and McLaurin, but like from the COVID aspect, obviously the defensive line is the story, particularly going up against this opponent, I think. Yeah, it's something to watch and something to keep in mind too is last month I was doing a story on unvaccinated players in the NFL. And for part of that, I was looking at the return rate for all right, vaccinated players. They can return sooner than 10 days, which is the minimum unvaccinated players have to miss. So how often are those players, uh, you know, returning sooner in that time frame? And what I was told is it's about 20%. So if you put a 20% chance at Jonathan Allen playing on Sunday, I mean, Washington would take that over nothing, but I still don't think it's particularly a good chance because that's just for 10 days. I don't know what it would be for within a week. And so, yeah, it's going to be really challenging for them. If you think about that Eagles game last year, I mean, the Eagles are on their way to winning that game before Doug Peterson pulled out Jason Hurts, or Jason Hurts, Jalen Hurts, excuse me. And, um, so, yeah, I mean, it's they're in a tricky spot for sure. They are. Um, all right. So on the more conventional injury front. So, again, they already had J.D. McKissick out the last two games with this concussion injury. The fact that he was able to practice late last week, at least a little bit, would be some positive sign, perhaps. But look, concussions are obviously incredibly tricky. Um, and, um, you know, who knows? We'll have to see about that. Um, but uh, Taylor Heineke, as you mentioned, banged up in the, in the game, knee and elbow. Sounds like he's coming through it okay. Um, Ron Rivera's already said, despite the fact that it was Heineke's worst performance as a starter, that he would remain the starter. I don't think there's much. Well, I wasn't really expecting any change there. Kyle Allen looked reasonable, all things considered. Um, but, you know, Heineke would start, but sounds like he'll be able to, to go. But we'll get a, a feel for it this week. Uh, Terry McLaurin, though, in the concussion program. Again, who knows? Uh, you know, you never know how these things go. So, we're gonna have to see on that one. Um, so those, uh, uh, right? Uh, oh, Tyler Larson and Achilles. I would imagine we're probably not gonna hear good news on him. Eventually, I, I would imagine. Uh, let's just say I would imagine his season's probably in jeopardy. But uh, Achilles injury, you know, it's kind of all. It seems like it's all, all an all or nothing deal. But we'll have to see about that. Either way, you already mentioned Keith Ishmael is probably on tap to start again. He is the the fourth the fourth guy to have started a game already this year at center for them. Um, so that's what they got to deal with there. And look, football teams get beat up. This is no different, but they already have a lot going on. And, and like I said, we'll have to see. There could be more 
uh, COVID situations going on. Again, we're, t- we're talking right now a little before four o'clock on Tuesday, and it's been around four o'clock when things happen. So maybe something will happen as we're even talking. We'll see about that. Uh, this all brings me to, to, the, to, the, to the McLaurins and the McKissick. Uh, Matt, this brings me to Curtis Samuel. Okay, let, let, let's, have a, let's have an honest conversation here about this. We all get the deal. I don't know if people here are listening to this podcast, they know the deal. We don't have to go through back chapter and verse on the whole story about the, the, the Curtis Samuel, but obviously he's been out mo- almost the entirety of the time since he's been here because of this groin situation that he had a secret surgery on. Um, he was out the first three games, came back in the fourth game, played 20 snaps, five the next game, out several more weeks, then came back, played 20 snaps. Uh, who was 20 against uh, Seattle? 20 against Vegas, but only played 14 against Dallas, which is bizarre if you're going to tell me he didn't have an injury setback, especially when Terry McLaurin is hurt in the game, because you would think if he's able to go, it's Curtis Samuel, that he'd be able to go. Now, I didn't pull the quote up in front of me, but I asked Ron Rivera on Monday during his Zoom, did Curtis have a setback because he played less? And Ron, he didn't say that he didn't have a setback, but he said that the reason for him getting less work was because of the game plan and, 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 and game situations. Okay, Matt, you're a smart guy. Tell me on what plane of existence that makes any logical sense. You're telling me that a guy you signed to a three-year, $34 million contract to be not just your second receiver, but, but this unique playmaker in the circumstance in which you need now, you need help. Reminder, they were losing 24 to nothing. They got to get big plays going. And Terry McLaurin gets hurt in the third quarter that you're not getting this guy out on the field if he's capable of. He may not be, which is fine. He's been hurt. That's all other story. It is crazy to me that Ron Rivera said what he said. Of course, I understand that if he's still trying to protect the player from the injury perspective, the whole surgery situation was a big mystery to boot. So I am just sort of looking at it like, come on. It's impossible to me that from a game plan perspective, if he wasn't involved, they did try to get in the ball a few times. It just didn't really work out much. So you tell me, am I just being overly cynical or did you, or what did you think of that uh, circumstance? No, I think it's, I think you're on the money. And the thing you could say is, all right, 14 snaps, but Washington held the ball less. So, you know, maybe it just, that that's the way the math worked. Well, he only played 21% of Washington's offensive snaps and that was lower than the past two weeks. So, it, it was a reduction, no matter how, you know, you look at it. And so it, it is really confusing. They didn't even really use Samuel in the ways that you would expect him to. You know, he wasn't in – I don't think he was in the backfield that much. They love to use him across motion. It didn't really stick that way. And the way I look at it now is, you know, Terry McLaurin is probably going to be out. And so can he fill that McLaurin role? I don't know. It's not – he doesn't really – he hasn't really been used as a burner down the field. He hasn't made a lot of contested catches. We just haven't really seen Samuel, you know, in an expanded role. And it seems like they're going to need him to do that. But I just don't think he's there physically. And it is really strange that, you know, the, the ways that they're using him, um, they, they definitely seem like he's been limited. Yeah, right. I mean, he is if, – if he was healthy, he is not a Terry McLaurin replacement. Curtis Samuel is a unique player. He is, I, you and I discussed this offline the other day. 
it's not that he and J.D. McKissick are the exact same. It's just that they're both like neither one of them is a running back. Neither one of them is a receiver, but you want the ball in their hands in, in space and various capacities. And they can do the various things. You wouldn't say to Curtis Samuel, you're the, you're the X go be that guy. No, you want to get, you know, be creative with him. And that, that's fine. It would be if, 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 if Terry McLaurin is out, um, you know, Cam Sims can do some of those more conventional things. Deami Brown can do some of the more conventional things, whereas Humphreys is the slot guy. DeAndre Carter, just based on his limited size, is going to be probably, you know, he's not going to be that same guy either. And that's fine. But the idea that you wouldn't have this guy in the get trying to get this guy out on the field as much as possible in general is is something. So obviously something is going on with that. Again, this whole thing has been a mystery and, and I'm not trying to ding anybody. And, you know, I hope everybody's all right. And, you know, Ron Rivera multiple times said Curtis Samuel had a bit of a setback but when he went on the COVID list back this summer. Again, I don't want to speculate. I have no idea what's going on, but people obviously have had some lingering issues with that. So who knows? The coach is the one that brought up multiple times that it was a setback. I think he was talking about it from a physical like conditioning standpoint, but who knows? I don't know what's going on. The whole thing is odd. If he's able to go, and as, as Terry McLaurin can't, and if we don't know about J.D. McKissick, then this is a time where you really would need this guy. Because if that without them, you're looking at, what, Adam Humphreys, Cam Sims, uh, De'Ami Brown, DeAndre Carter, Dax Milne. Like, I think those guys are solid, but you're taking off McLaurin, you're taking off Logan Thomas. <laughs> like, that's going to be a tall task to ask these guys to go in any event we'll get more into the eagles here on the podcast um later in in this week um lastly matt before we go um let, let's just talk briefly about this new washington post story and i say briefly only from the standpoint of it's a lot to digest and i don't want to be i don't want to give anything short shrift so i would encourage people go read the, the the story over on the post it's it's their latest uh deep look into everything that's kind of going on um involving Dan Snyder, the NFL, the Wilkinson report, the investigation into the, the team culture and all that. And a lot of uh, there, there's some interesting angles here to get to um, the, the they, they have to get to the um, sorry, Matt, I'm blanking here because I don't, I'm, I'm doing 12 things at once. Uh, the the uh, an accused, somebody who Dan Snyder settled with several years ago. Um, there was a, apparently some attempt to block this person from possibly speaking with the Wilkinson investigation. Um, the, the idea that some of the former employees felt concerned about, you know, uh, Dan Snyder having private investigators uh, harassing them, looking into them, all that. I, some of these things I think were kind of out in the public sphere, uh, but Matt and I are people paying attention to this. So go read the story it's interesting and you should determine for yourself what you think there. But Matt, the one thing that really stood out to me was that was new was uh, there was a note in there that said kind of like with regards to the emails, the one constant with regards to all the emails involving John Gruden, involving um, Demora Smith, involving the NFL is that Bruce Allen is involved in all the emails. And it looks like, and I've talked about this on this podcast, that it looks like that, Bruce Allen on some level is the focus of whoever it is that is supposedly putting these emails out. And to me, you know, Dan Snyder is one person not getting touched really by any of this. So, um, you know, you could make, if you wanted to make a leap, I'm just guessing, I have no idea that like potentially Dan Snyder would have been, or somebody from his world is the one 
putting this stuff out there. Well, that's kind of where the post goes and talking to different people um, around the league. But in this idea, it says part of the reason why he is so upset with Bruce Allen is because Bruce Allen did not text him congratulations upon hiring Ron Rivera. That Bruce Allen apparently did send Ron Rivera a text saying congrats, but didn't send one to Dan Snyder. An off the charts aspect, considering reminder, he fired Bruce Allen or whatever. Like, so it that to me was an unbelievably crazy and petty look into the into the situation. Right. It's also not surprising. I mean, it is surprising, but it's not. It it tracks with Dan Snyder's reputation. Um, you know, people have said that he's vindictive, that he he goes after people, and um, you know, it it makes sense. I, I don't know if that's necessarily the the full reason why Allen and, and Snyder have uh, gone back and forth in court with one another, but it it helps peel back a layer of saying just how far this relationship has deteriorated because. Bruce Allen for a long, long time was Dan Snyder's right-hand man. And, you know, whenever you would see Dan at games, Bruce would right, be right by his side. And when that started to, to go wrong, it, they were clearly far apart. I'll always remember that Dallas game to end the 2019 season, them walking different uh, paths in the, the tunnel there down in uh, AT&T Stadium. So, you know, their relationship has really – gotten off track and, and yeah this is a pretty big story by the post and credit to them for uh putting it all together because like you said you know these were things that were kind of out there not not the allen stuff but like the, the intimidating witnesses but they put it all together and when it does it all put together like that it, it does look very damaging it's just a question of whether the nfl will take action against snyder and so far i don't think there's anything they haven't so far so why would they now it would be my question Right. I mean, ultimately, look, I get it. Uh, you know, I've talked about it before. I, I was a fan of this team. I, I sort of checked out emotionally even before I took this job in large part because of I could see where Dan Snyder was going, but just from a football perspective, not all these other components. Um, and I get where fans are like, oh, please, somebody do something here with this ownership. I, I would just say, ultimately to me, until the other owners decide that they've had enough, the, the smoking gun level is going to have to be a lot more to get him out. The owner, the, the you know, the league loaned him money previously. They've already gone out of their way to not release this Wilkinson report. Like until they determine that it's not worth it anymore, I just don't see what's going to what's going to change. Not to we'll not that has nothing to do with the importance of this story or any of these subsequent stories that come out and 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 the details of the various um, employees, the women who 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 have uh, dealt with these issues, that the ones that were the, the, the harassed all important, but I'm just saying from the perspective of, is this going to lead to Dan Snyder being ousted as the owner? I would just say, don't hold your breath on that until the other owners decide that for them, it's enough. I don't know what's going to change. Um, there's no easy transition to go from that <laughs> to talking just conventional sports about the wizards, but we're going to, we're going to make that pivot here uh, while we have Matt here. Uh, Matt and I both watched the Denver, the wizards lose at Denver last night from the comforts of our respective home. Um, and Matt uh, covers the Wizards for the team. He's uh, he's actually been at the games this year um, in, in between his football team duties. He's the hardest working man uh, in town. Um, I used to have that role, but I gave it up. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, Matt, at one point this year, I'm pretty sure 
it was discussed on this podcast and elsewhere. The Wizards were good. They were they were winning a lot of games. I don't I, I lost it. Maybe you know off the top of your head uh, uh, as to what their what the high mark of their record was. But they were like essentially atop the Eastern Conference. Uh, you know everything was looking great. I, I had Fred Katz on here. We went in great detail about why you should believe in what's going on here with the Wizards. And a lot of those reasons I still believe in the sense of like there's more depth, there's more professionals out there. There's a lot of energy that guys like Montrez Harrell bring to the situation. Bradley Bill doesn't have to do it all himself. On the other hand, wow, they have just gone off a cliff here now to the point uh, I, I where I, I, when I looked last night during the game, they were the they were the seven seed. Yeah, so they are the seven seed right now in the East at 15 and 13. That's only one, from a from a loss perspective. The Atlanta Hawks, the 11 seed. That's only one less loss than the Hawks, the 11 seed. So they lose another game here. They're they they, they may be the 11 seed. <laughs> I mean, wow. Well, okay, so where would you like to go? Would you? I mean, Bradley Beal's sort of an easy one to look at because he's the best player on the team and he's struggling with his shooting. And, and in general, so a lot of things typically go from there. But you can talk about Beal, you can talk about whatever. What stands out to you given um, to given the situation? I, I mean, I think it's Beal. I also think it's Spencer Dinwiddie. Just, it, you know, the Wizards are only going to be as good as their best players are. And those were supposed to be the top two this year. And, you know, Kyle Kuzma has done a great job, but he's on the COVID list right now. But even before then, you know, when they were 10 and three, their offense was still just average. And I don't know what it is. I think they're five and 10 within the last, they're five and 10 over their last 15 games. And I don't know what their offensive ranking is in that span, but you know, Beal hasn't found a rhythm yet. Uh, Dinwiddie's only averaging nine points per game over his last 12. Um, It's just really kind of alarming, especially the Beal drop off. I mean, he's down nearly nine points. His scoring average is down nearly nine points per game. I was trying to find like what is the the similar comp or, you know, is this a historic drop-off? And the only one I could really think of is Allen Iverson that last year going from Philadelphia that the year he was traded to Denver, he had a pretty big drop-off. I think it was like seven points per game. He went from like 30 to 23 or something like that. But, you know, Bradley Beal's in his prime. This is just really alarming and, I look at it two ways. I think one, he's getting used to Spencer Dinwiddie playing with uh, a different type of player because as much of a switch as it was going from John Wall to Westbrook, Westbrook, Westbrook and Wall were kind of similar players. They, Very they similar. Pace, they knew how to get it up and down. Dinwiddie has a lot more of a rhythm. And if you listen to West Until talk, he talks a lot about Dinwiddie um, needing to be aggressive, getting downhill, going to the rim. And I just don't think they're playing with that type of pace that really puts Beal in a position to really thrive. Because, you know, if you think about it, Beal is facing double teams, traps, blitzes, pretty much every play. Like the opposing game plan is to stop Bradley Beal. And so playing at a slower pace, he's not going to have as much work to do in the half court. And he's going to have to be able, he's going to be forced to give the ball up more. So, you know, I think it's partly that. And then the other thing is just, um, you know, how Beal's three-point percentage has really fallen off a cliff. And I know you tweeted about it the other day, but, man, it's really, really started. It is crazy. By the way, like, one thing, you know, we, we've talked a lot about, like, we don't have access to the locker rooms anymore, or at least not at this point because of the, the COVID situation. And, you know, look, uh, 
on the NFL perspective from a game, you know, NFL coaches are kind of crazy. I mean, I get it. Like they don't, they don't want to reveal anything about anything, which would made the Mike McCarthy stuff so notable that he set up guaranteeing a win. Like even something like that was like considered, Oh, wow. Can you believe somebody would say anything, but let alone the game plan. If you ask Ron Rivera or Jack Del Rio, what they think of going into this week, like of Jalen hurts or uh, somebody like that, they'll be like, Oh, really good player. Like they're not going to discuss. Well, the key is you got to pen pen Jalen Hurts in with you know moving your defensive backs up, you know not let him get to the perimeter, or whatever. But you go into the NBA locker rooms, like there'd be a whiteboard because we would often go into the visitor side. There'd be a whiteboard that would say, you know, deny John Wall penetration when you know get stay near. I'm making names up. Trevor Ariza in the corner, right? Whatever the thing, like it would tell you stuff, I and mean, you know. It's sort of the honor system. You're not supposed to go in there and like blab stuff to the world, but you would at least have some feel for this. And you're right. So I guarantee you those whiteboards would say, Bradley Beal, deal with him, you know, cover, um, you know, cover, uh, cover him. Don't let him get going. It, I, I, his, the percentages for Bradley Beal, you know, it's been, I think basically four seasons since he shot even 37% from three, he was at 35% basically every year until this year, which is a low number for a player of Bradley Beal's ability uh, from, from distance. That, that That's more of the, your, if you told me like Contavious Caldwell Pope shot that from there or Kyle Kuzma, like, okay, that's solid. That means you have to worry about that guy. He can make it occasionally, you know, whatever, but Bradley Beal, you're expecting somewhere around the 40% mark, but I always chalked it up to, as John Wall was playing less and less and his responsibilities became more and more, and he was playing more on the ball that it just meant he was, you know, positionally was just in different spots and therefore just didn't, maybe wasn't getting as clean of looks. You mentioned the double teams, but also just like it's different coming off the dribble versus coming off a pick, but he's at 26% now. This is like, if Russell Westbrook was shooting 26, I would say, well, that's terrible. Even for a guy who's not known to be a shooter. 26 percent it's really hard to fathom what's going what is happening here so um you know uh, you know hopefully some dogged reporters like yourself can uh, dive into it when you when you're back out there covering the team can uh can, can see what's going on um be, beyond or uh, do you have anything else on Beal or if not what who, is there somebody else or one other specific situation that's sort of standing out to you as to what what the problem is yeah and I think it's really the They've slipped defensively, too, during the stretch, and the lack of a, a rim protector is really just jarring. And I know they have Daniel Gafford, and everyone loves his blocks, and he does an okay job there, but it's still not its not what you want. I mean, Jokic is an MVP, and he'll dog anyone, but the reason Denver got up to such a lead is because Gafford got into foul trouble, and then Denver just picked on Harrell pretty much the entire time, and they just really don't have that size, and uh, I think Gafford is okay. I just – I've kind of cooled on the Daniel Gafford experience, maybe even more so than most. Or, you know, I was pretty high on him like everyone else. I just – I think he's come back to earth a little bit. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he obviously is a rim protector and just sort of the basic level of as he blocks shots. But he he's not big, right? He He's a thin guy, and, and Montrez Harrell – you know, God bless the hustle and the energy, but he's, you know, pretty undersized. He's got a huge wingspan, but body wise, there's just not, he's just not the biggest guy in the world out there. Um, You know, I've heard some notion of like, well, wait till Thomas Bryant comes back 
and I just sort of keep viewing it like, well, I don't know what that's going to really do for anybody. Where's Thomas Bryant playing? You're not, in theory, taking, you're not going to limit Gafford and, and Montrose Harrell's minutes a ton. And neither one of those guys, you're really not playing any of the three of them together. So how are you going to space that out? Last year, they did use three centers a decent amount, but I, I want Montrez Harrell on the floor. So how do you work this out? I think that's going to be interesting. I guess part of me wonders if you really feel compelled to get Thomas Bryant, a bigger guy out there, he can shoot. You know, I don't want to say he's a stretch five, but he can shoot. So I guess, is there a world where you can use Thomas Bryant and Harold together and, you know, offensively sort of play them four or five in one way, defensively play them the other way? Maybe, but, you know, Thomas Bryant's defense wasn't exactly a strength of his game before. So, you know, this is an interesting development. Also, uh, they just signed Gafford to a big contract, and I would hope they're going to keep Montrezl Harrell. So that could be their center combination going forward. So it's interesting to see, like, it feels like Gafford's going to have to develop more than it's going to have to be. They have to bring in somebody else to solve that problem. No, I mean, you could also just, depending on the matchup, just rotate those guys, kind of what the Lakers did last year with their three centers. You know, some days Gafford could be a healthy scratch and have Bryant. Because that's the thing now is Washington needs their offense. I mean, it really, like, you need Bryant to be able to, to stretch the floor and to, to rim run and do all those things. It, they kind of have missed his offense here during this. It really kind of fell into a rut. And it, even Rui, too, who we haven't talked about, who knows when he's going to play, but. They like I was wondering early on in the season when they were ten and three, like, man, what's the move? Who's gonna who's gonna come out of the rotation? And now it seems like all right. I think Denny's cooled off too. He's been okay, but um, you know, I think West Sunsell definitely has to find a role for the other two, and if that costs for Tons a rotation spot, all right, whatever. Well, that's the other thing, right? We talked about Bradley Beal not being able to shoot. They don't have anybody making shots from distance. I mean, the, I don't have the number in front of me. This reminds me of when I would go on Fred's podcast to be completely unprepared um, for anything. But like, in fairness to me, there's been a lot of news happening, even while we're sitting here talking and checking my phone and dealing with some other things. Um, but in terms of that, right? I mean, they're not making shots. I mean, I think Berton's um, shown a little more signs of life lately, but he's also such a liability on the other end of the court. You know, this was a fun problem we all discussed before the season started. How are they going to play all these front court pieces? There's not enough realistic minutes for everybody. You can kind of put Corey Kispert on the side a little bit, younger player, rookie, fine. But everybody else, if healthy, they're, they're not yet. Um, then then we'll have to see. Uh, but, yeah, they got to hit somebody to make some shots. It, like, what's the – like, if Bertans could be consistently making shots like he did over – you know, since he's been with the team – with way things are going, you might have to say, look, we're going to have to sacrifice some defense to get somebody to, to make a couple shots, which will helpful then free some other things up. But if he can't do that and Beal's going to keep struggling, I don't even know where they get more shooting. Again, I mean, it's not like Kuzma or KCP can't make a shot, but it's not, they're, you know, they're also not like, you don't want them taking so many, you know? Yeah. So ha- that, that I think is a bigger, is a challenge. Like the roster does, doesn't really have a ton of guys right now who even feel good about shooting, let alone actually making the shots. I mean, you know, Washington has a lot of one-year expiring deals and they have movable assets. I mean, maybe that's something you look at doing. Like, not to sound like Chase <laughs> This is Chase Hughes, if you're listening, you'll appreciate this, but maybe you go after Miles Turner and try and package 
some things together. To, I'm, uh, of, of all the cha- terrible option. Of all the of all the wacky Chase Hughes thoughts, Miles Turner I've always liked, and 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 for I know that the Wizards did a couple years ago were looking into possibly making a move to get Miles Turner. Um, didn't work out at that point, but you know, again, Miles Turner would, would solve a lot of problems in theory. He you know, can defend the rim and and make some shots. Um, look, that's the one fun thing the Wizards have right now because they have more pieces with movable contracts. They could package two or three guys to figure something out, but at the same point, you know, to what end? And that's what they've got to determine. What do they need, and what and what's the cost, and and how much are they sort of either going all in, or even if it's just sort of when you have the pieces, you maybe have one chance to take the pieces and make the move. Like the Boston Celtics for several years had a lot of stuff and never quite figured out what to do with it all. And ultimately they're kind of where they are, where they're basically in the same boat as the wizards, which is way more negative for them considering how they were positioned a a couple of years ago. So, you know, I'm not saying the wizards have a massive haul, but they have stuff. So at some point you should take your stuff and go do something with it. That becomes interesting as to who's the thing and what's, what do you do with it? Yeah, no, for sure. They definitely have pieces. It just, but if they keep falling back, you know, maybe there's not as much urgency to, to make a move either. I mean, if they were a top four seed and you could really go after it, chase a few wins, it would maybe make sense to make that upgrade. But right now they're kind of in a, a other no man's land again. Um, yeah, for, for sure. All right. Is there anything else uh, specifically off the Denver game since it just happened last night? Uh, full disclosure, Matt is a uh, – Noted Nuggets fan, so take anything he's going to say with massive bias. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Matt's a professional. Uh, but, like, the Nuggets weren't exactly loaded yesterday. They, they were missing a bunch of pieces. They did have Nikola Jokic out there, and obviously he's really good, and he was playing at an MVP level last night. They had their little point guard, was making crazy plays. But, like, they were missing a bunch of pieces, and the Wizards did not stand out in any way, shape, or form. But yeah, it, it reminded me of the way – the Wizards did come back to make the final score look like it wasn't a massive blowout, similar to the way the football team did on Sunday um, in the late stages. But for, you know, three quarters of the game, they were not, you know, not really competitive um, and, and getting whooped. Um, what specific, what, what did you kind of buy out of, what was your takeaway just from that game specifically as to a- any problem? Well, I wasn't surprised the Wizards made their comeback even before Jokic got tossed. I mean, any time that he has to sit, it's just a disaster for Denver and for him to get tossed in the manner that he did. That's just, if you really want to pull the Denver fan out of me, there's a bigger conversation to be had there about Jokic's maturity and how he just kind of seems to snap and it's really kind of frustrating at times, but um, yeah, you know, they, they, that was the nice thing you could say about the wizards is they took advantage of, a moment they absolutely needed to. I mean, they didn't actually end up winning the game, but I got a little worried there for a second from a Denver fan, you know, I was watching it objectively, but it, you know, it, um, it was still kind of uh, startling to see, but yeah, you know, it, I think the Wizards are fine. Like uh, I was impressed with Beal's playmaking, you know, season high, 10 assists kind of, was taking what the defense gave him, but yeah, I, I think the Wizards are kind of, you know, they'll probably land in the play-in range uh, at this point. I think they're still good enough to make the playoffs. It's just 
where things kind of even out here. Yeah, I mean, in the broad scope of the world, if based on the Wizards record, you know, if we told you this is what the Wizards record would be at this point, I'm not telling you how they got there. It's like, all right, seems seems reasonable. I mean, they were, you know, under 500, essentially, they were under 500 last year, and it took that big surge late to even get as close as they got um, to, to 500 and to make the playoffs. So it seems like they're ahead of the curve, and I would still argue they are, but at some point, you need to get out of the tailspin, and the fact that you know, it's one thing to say the last few years, they have Bradley Beal, but not much else. For why now you need your best player, right, to, to get stuff going. You know, the, the NFL, you could, other than a quarterback, you can probably get by with your best player not playing at the level they need to be at because there's so many pieces. The NBA, one guy, the best player dominates the ball to such a degree that you really can't, you, that's not going to work. So at some point, Bradley Beal's got to get going here. Um, and whether it's, I don't know, the shots aren't falling. The contract stuff is weighing on them. There's other physical aspects happening. Something is off. They got to have to figure this out. At some point here, the season's still pretty early, but you know, it's also there's enough data to show that, that we're seeing we've seen enough to, to start making some conclusions, and and that's what's a little bit concerning about this situation. Um, any final thoughts, or before I let you get back into the wild? Uh, no, we successfully recorded this podcast or podcast without anything breaking. So, all right. Yeah, well, I mean, we can stay on until it does if there, if something were to happen, but um, we we will we will see. Um, all right, well, all that said, Matt, I appreciate the time. Go follow Matt on Twitter at Matthew underscore Paris P A R A S. Read him at the Washington Times. Uh, make fun of uh, DePaul. I don't know, whatever you got. Oh, DePaul, I think I saw they're like a it'd be in like the final four in or out right now for the season right. today. Is that what I saw? DePaul, you cowards! What's that? I said, rank DePaul, you cowards. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, look at that. They are, uh, they, you know, look, uh, look, I mean, Georgetown beat Syracuse. DePaul's good. I mean, who said, and, you know, this is why people are saying the Big East is really good this year because Georgetown and DePaul are um, taking names. Um, Big East school DePaul. That's what I've always said. There you go. Uh, all right, man. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, joining the podcast as promised, he is a brand new draft analyst. For ESPN, he is you, you'll you'll know the name, but it's not him. Jordan Reed <laughs> at, at Jordan underscore Reed R E I D on Twitter. I'm sure everybody is at some point may you've heard that reference a bunch of times, but seeing as how I covered the Washington football team, I figure I need to make that clear. How, thanks for thanks for doing this. How, how's it going? No problem. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's a pleasure being here. And you know, when Jordan Reed retired there wasn't a person that was happier than me just because I got a lot of the backlash whenever he made bad plays, whether it was in Washington or San Francisco. So I was excited when he did finally retire. I I bet. I bet. Um, So it's funny. It's funny to me, almost on some level that we're doing this. Normally when I book a podcast guest, I probably do it a few days in advance, depending on the situation. But I remember I reached out to you. This is in November. And I was like, you know, let me start getting ahead of this because the cut the team I cover is two and six. They're, you know, they need a quarterback. Let, let, let's get ahead of this. And so we talked, we, we planned this date probably like a month ago. And and it's amazing how the world is different. I even went, was like looking at one of your, I don't know if it's your last mock draft, but you had a mock draft on November 17th and you had Washington with the eighth pick because that's where they yeah. were, three and six. And here they are. Um, there are still draft questions to be had. They will be a draft. They'll be, whether they... Lose, win another game whether they lose every all their games or win the super bowl they, they'll be they'll have draft picks so there's things to discuss but anyway it's wild how things have changed since we first started to uh to do to plan this 
Yeah, and we were talking about this a little bit pre-show of what you just mentioned of how things have completely changed over the past few months or so. This, you know, Washington being on a four-game win streak, two and six at a time, now sitting at six and six, and things completely changing. You know, Taylor Heineke playing better, a bunch of the roster playing better, even when Chase Young going down, the defense seems to be playing better too. So it's just crazy how much changes over four weeks. Uh, absolutely. Um, and obviously, there's going to be a lot of change that's going to happen with the draft world. I mean, it, you know, look, I love mock drafts as much as the next guy. I do them myself. I'm not, I won't do anything until we get in, I get past this season and we get into the, to the college year and we'll get through the, you know, the, into the, the bowl games and the senior bowl and, and all, and all that. Um, I don't know. Are you, I, it seems like a lot of people who, who are actual analysts can't stand doing mock drafts because it's almost forcing you to have to make predictions on things that you don't really want to do. You just want to say, I, I look at this player and based on the, my, my evaluation, the player, these are strengths and weaknesses as opposed to, well, the Ravens need that guy. Therefore he'll go 15th or he's, a you know, is that, is that, is that kind of reordered? Do you like doing the mock draft exercise? Uh, so I don't like doing mock drafts prior to January. That's the thing that I do hate doing, but I enjoy doing them once things become a little bit clearer as far as the draft order knowing which guys played well, which guys are probably slipping down the board. But mock drafts in October and November, they're really tough. And it's really a fun exercise for readers to consume. And every draft analyst will tell you that, that they hate doing mock drafts prior to, you know, the scouting combine and once post-season all-star game circuits really get going. That's really when we get a feel for exactly team needs. You know, once free agency takes place, we know what holes teams are starting to plug in and then what's left after that. So, you know, mock drafts and, uh, you know, in the fall, November, October, we don't really enjoy doing it then. But January, February, once we get closer to the draft in the later portions of April and then early May, of course, when the real thing happens, it just helps us paint a clearer picture of what possibly could happen. How much do you think? So, OK, so at this point, the college, the regular season is over. The, all that's left for most of these teams is going to be the like one game. I mean, I guess maybe two more if you're in the in the playoff system. Um, and then you get to the fun stuff, the senior bowl and the combine and, and then uh, pro days and things like that. Based on your previous experience, I know everything is relative to the individual, but how much do you think things can really change for some prospects between with, with all that's left? Or, I mean, like, in other words, if a player is going into this draft and they've been playing for say three years in some capacity versus now, whatever have left these last few weeks or months, how much do you think is really going to change uh, or what we'll hear about guys that are risers and followers. Like, is that just like a small amount or is that like, wow, even for like, even most guys will have a, a different view of them than we did. Uh, do we do right now? It's a big amount, honestly, you know, the postseason all-star game circuit, getting to interview these guys on what I like to call speed dating at the combine when they get those 15 or 20 minute right. interviews with 60 plus players, it makes a big difference just because it's kind of scouting lingo and a scouting term, but when you can get eyes on guys, it just matters. And, you know, you can watch all the tape. You can watch all the All-22 and coaches film that you want. But being able to meet the person and getting to know the person is a huge deal. And that's something that was missing during last year's draft. And, you know, meeting a guy in person and getting to sit down face-to-face with him, seeing how well he knows the game, some going over some film of some mistakes that he may have, and then some positive plays, too, and just how, allowing them to talk you through those positives and negative moments. I think it helps the guys a ton. And that's why a lot of teams really put a lot of weight into those postseason draft circuits, specifically those all-star games, the Senior Bowl, the East-West Shrine, 
who's starting to build some momentum too. And even some of these lower tier bowl games too, to where you find out those, what I like to call those depth fillers and those undrafted free agent type of players, it really matters. Um, so, there, you know, so, um, so we understand all that. So the, the idea of asking you, what are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? Who are guys that we like? We, we all understand we're talking somewhat grain of salt here. We have feels, have thoughts, but things could change. So we'll just keep that in mind as everybody who's, uh, who's listening. So that said, and we don't even know who's in, who's officially in the draft class yet. Cause obviously some guys will still have to declare based on your sense though, right now, strengths and weaknesses. Can you, are there a couple positions out there that you think, Hey, if teams need, you know, these things that they, they should be in good shape or, or a couple where you're like, Oh boy, good luck finding someone. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of positions that are actually strengths and I'll start. I think all the premium positions are really strong outside of quarterback. And what I mean by premium is quarterback, um, offensive tackle, defensive end, and then also cornerback. I think three out of those four are really considered strong in offensive tackle. You're going to see a lot of guys in this class pop up. I'm sure you've seen the names Evan Neal from Alabama, mm-hmm. Ikem from NC State, who's really made an ascension this year. Charles Cross from Mississippi State is another name you'll start to see in top 15s of mock drafts. And then Edge Rusher, I think this is by far the strongest group of any on offense or defense. You see the two names at the top and Aiden Hutchinson from Michigan and then Kayvon Thibodeau from Oregon. But there's plenty of other players after that. That's really that get that really, really gets you excited. George Karloftis from Purdue, who recently declared for the draft and stated that he's not going to play in the team's bowl game. Trayvon Walker from Georgia is another name that you'll hear a lot about, too. So this edge rusher class not only is deep in the first round, but I think you can find some value on day two and then also day three as well. And then the cornerback class has really been fun watching and studying those guys. Derek Stingley Jr. from LSU, who had the miraculous 2019 season, but has been banged up a little bit over the past two seasons but we know how special he can be on the next level. Kyer Elam from Florida is another name that's starting to get a lot of buzz. Andrew Booth Jr. from Clemson is another name you hear about too. And the list goes on and on. And we're going to see a top flight matchup in the college football playoff with this wide receiver group and Jamison Williams, who we saw from Alabama, and then Ahmad Sauce Gardner from Cincinnati, who I had in the top 20 of my latest mock draft too. So um, so why, excuse me, offensive tackle, defensive end, and cornerback, I think those are the strongest position groups across the board, but there's plenty of other depth uh, fillers that, that I like to call in this draft class too. Um, all right. So part of the reason why I wanted to have you on right at this time is the bowl game start uh, next week, basically, or, or the December 17th. I want to say the first game is the Bahamas bowl. And then there's 41 bowl games um, in total, which is, which is a <laughs> lot. Um, and look, I, I'm sure some people out there are crazy enough. are going to try to watch them all or the most, Others will probably be like, well, you know, I'll, I'll certainly watch the playoff games, but everything else, I'm just going to have to pick and choose. From a, just purely a draft prospect perspective, in terms of the lower the lower tier bowls, you know, the, the ones who are not January 1st you know, day in the playoffs and things like that, if you had to tell somebody, all right, here's the one bowl. Uh, you go sit down and watch this one. You're going to have a good time. There's somebody I love in this, or there's multiple guys. What What's the one bowl that you would tell people to go watch? Well, I'll just stick to the script with some of the needs that the Washington football team has. And, you know, the tough part about bowl games over the past few years is just projecting who's going to play. A lot of these guys are opting out, especially if it's not a New Year's Six Bowl or the college football playoff. So it's really tough to peg exactly which games you want to watch just because you don't know if this guy may declare a couple of days before the game, even though the coaching staff and the team already knew that he wasn't going to play. But now he's made it known to the public that he's not going to play. So, you know, I just stick to some of the quarterbacks that 
uh, haven't officially declared for the draft or opted out of the bowl game. Malik Willis from Liberty. Um, he's playing in the, the Linden Tree Bowl against Michigan, Eastern Michigan, excuse me, on December 18th. So that definitely would be one game that I, if I was a Washington football team fan, I definitely would have circled on my calendar. So December 18th and Linden Tree Bowl with Malik Willis against Eastern Michigan. I think that's one game you definitely should be keeping an eye on. When I was looking back at your last mock draft, you had three quarterbacks in the top 14 picks, and I think it was Matt Corral going eight to Washington at that point, Kenny Pickett, the Pittsburgh quarterback, and then Willis, I think you had going 14. Um, I, I want to say, and I should have looked at this, but I didn't right now, but I think when I was looking at our guy, Dane Brugler's last mock, I don't know if he had Willis in there, and obviously a lot of these things are arbitrary, but also it's been like a month or yeah. a few weeks since your um, that, that mock draft happened. Is Willis, I mean, he – Liberty's obviously a lower level team relative to the bigger schools. And, you know, I don't know exactly how they finished or so to speak, but like, did he, is he still for you a guy who's kind of right up there with Corral and Pickett, assuming you have them still at the top or did he have any type of dip um, towards the end? Yeah, he struggled down the bat stretch against Louisiana Monroe. He had three interceptions in that game. He really struggled against Army, even though he didn't get a bunch of help in that game from, from his surrounding cast. So he has slipped a little bit. I think Kenny Pickett and Matt Corral are in a tier of their own right now. And then after that, you get into Malik Willis and Sam Howell and Desmond Ritter and Carson Strong. I think that's probably the next four in that group. But you know, the great thing about this class is that Jim Nagy has kind of been hinting at the senior bowl that we could get five of the top six guys. And, you know, every name that I just mentioned outside of Matt Corral, I wouldn't say are expected to play in the senior bowl, but they have received an invitation. So I'm really excited to see all five of those guys in action, hopefully just because it can help differentiate them, especially when you're talking about once again, getting eyes on them in person, especially not just for me, but for scouts and evaluators too. I think it's going to help differentiate them and separate them into tiers. Yeah, I'm hoping to uh, get to the Senior Bowl. That was one of those events that, you know, got taken away in 2020 when the world uh, <laughs> when the world went sideways. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I like um, going to those things. I'm, I, 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 I'm not going to pretend I'm sitting there watching every rep and every snap and going, oh, I can tell by the way the by, by, by the way he turned his shoulder that all of a sudden <laughs> this is the guy that the Washington draft or things like that. But it is interesting to to be around it and to talk to people like you and scouts um for for that um perspective i'll come back to the quarterbacks um in in a second you mentioned i think already though like a couple uh, a name or two for guys in the playoff game who 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 in those playoff games are you most intrigued to see because as you're saying like evaluations could change for better or for worse. some guys could go up top five or maybe slip out of the first round or whatever who's somebody that like you're really intrigued to see on that big stage you're going up against the best teams in theory um, in those in those games is there somebody in those in those uh, among those four teams that you're kind of really intrigued to see uh, in, in a couple of weeks I think the one player that has the most riding on the college football playoff and I don't even think he's even close is Cincinnati quarterback Desmond Ritter mm -hmm. and you know Cincinnati has been quote-unquote playing inferior comp competition in the AAC and I had an opportunity to see him live against East Carolina I'm a North Carolina native so I wanted to get down and see him when they played against ECU. And I was really impressed by him in person. But, you know, ECU isn't really a great look for him as far as going against a defense with top tier talent. But now him facing against Alabama, you're going to see him against a quality opponent. And this is the first time that we've seen him against a quality opponent since he played against Notre Dame early on in the season, which he played really well against. And then last year in the Peach Bowl against Georgia. And I thought they held his hand a little bit more than my liking as far as in the offense. They didn't really let him open it up as much as that I would like to see you saw a bunch of underneath and short routes for the most part and they still had a chance to win that game Georgia ended up coming back at the last second but 
I just want to see how well he plays and just responds to the speed of Alabama and then playing against a quality opponent like this. And then, you know, with Washington winning and probably being in the teens right now, as far as the draft, Desmond Ritter is that guy that's probably going to go in the late first, early second round. So he could be in the wheelhouse of Washington if they are interested in the quarterback early on. You know, it's funny, right? Again, as I said, in your last mock draft, you had Matt Corral going eight to Washington, but like, if Washington was further down the list, I, I don't have the exact order right now, but like everything's relative to you. You can't just force a quarterback into a mock draft. The guy, the team has to have the need or they, you know, and you know, there are teams that are going to need quarterback, but they all won't necessarily be picking top 10. Like Detroit probably needs a quarterback, but where they're picking, it may not make any sense because people aren't viewing one of these quarterbacks to be good as good as some of the defensive linemen prospects, just as a, as an example, what's the line though? Because I got the thing I always get nervous about is if a quarterback is supposed to be really good, doesn't matter. Somebody will trade their way into the top 10, if not multiple teams to do that. And if they start sliding out, that to me is different. Like Matt Jones went 15, but that to me is different. He was the fifth quarterback. If the first quarterback is being picked 12, I yeah. start to get nervous. Like, well, wait, if they're being picked 12, they're probably, I, I would automatically kind of, they're being overdrafted even at that point because of the, the position that if they were really good, somebody would pick them higher. So like, what's that line between, look, some of these quarterbacks are going to go and some of them may even go top 10 because the natural progression, but as you're evaluating them, you're like, yeah, I got, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't love any of these guys enough to say they're worthy. Like I don't rank them top 10. Like what, you know what I mean? Like what's that line of, overdrafting a quarterback versus, well, you got to get one at some point. Well, I think it's a case-by-case basis, honestly, Ben. And, you know, with each team, they're going to evaluate their roster and where they stand. I don't think Detroit's going to take a quarterback just because they already have Jared Goff. I think he's owed $30 million next year. So, and they're not going to pay $30 million to a bridge quarterback. I just don't see that happening. And then their roster just isn't anywhere near or anywhere close to just inserting a quarterback right now, him being a difference maker to me anyway. Houston is really in an interesting spot with the Deshaun Watson situation. They just drafted a quarterback last year in the third round with Davis Mills, and then they still have Tyrod Taylor too. So I don't think they're going to be in a rush to select a quarterback either. And I think it's going to, go one and two as far as Aiden Hutchinson and then Thibodeau at the top, whoever Detroit or whoever does acquire that first pick overall, then just whoever they decide to take it at the top, I think is going to go one to two with either one of those guys. After that, I mean, it's just a mixed bag. You can go Evan Neal, you can go Derek Stingley. There's so many different ways that this draft class could go. And I think this is a very talented defensive class, which I think is going to result in some of these guys being pushed down the board. So we could see a quarterback go in that eight to 12 range, as you mentioned, just because we know with quarterbacks, there's always going to be a team that ends up reaching for one. And we saw that in the Kyler Murray draft when Washington selected Dwayne Haskins. And I think the Giants took they took Daniel Jones six overall, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Hacken, uh, excuse me, Haskins still went top 15, too. So I think this draft could be a little bit similar to that as far as a team trading up and then actually going to get their guy. But the interesting thing about this class is what's so different about previous ones is that in that same draft, everybody knew that Kyler Murray was the guy at the top. There was no question about that. But this draft class, you could ask 15 different evaluators. You can get eight to 10 different combinations as far as who their top three guys, their guys are at the position. So I think that's what's so interesting and fascinating about this class. Um, I, I wasn't, I, I was sort of springing this on you, but this is easy. Like, so I do like to do mock drafts, but I'm not going to pretend I'm sitting there breaking down the film. I'm just going off of like, well, I, 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 I read people like you. I try to talk to people and then I just recognize like I, I go from like the team needs out 
and just kind of figure out what where where to kind of go from from there. But you're doing the actual evaluation. But as you talk to teams and the GMs and scouts, they all have their own opinions on what it is. And I remember, you know, I know, I know a lot. Whenever I've talked to these people, sometimes you get wildly different opinions on um on what people think and say. Now, I, it's it would seem on some level you easily get swayed because in theory, if this person is whoever they are, a GM, or they've been a scout for 20 years, you're like, oh, they must know something. So, so it's not science. This is, you know, you, you, people do their homework, but how do you know? So what, how, how do you, uh, you're, you know, you're still a young guy. How, how do you figure, how do you walk that line of, I got my own thoughts and I got my own opinions, but damn, that guy is telling me yeah. I, he doesn't agree with what I'm thinking at all. How, how do you kind of work that as you kind of go through your process? I think you just have to have and stick to what your eyes see, but you can't be stubborn either just because we're on the media side. And, you know, we both know people inside the league, they talk, they compare notes and, you know, they don't, they don't give away too much as far as what they think of a prospect, but as far as a draft range and what they think, obviously they're going to exchange stuff back and forth of what they think about certain prospects. So whenever they're telling you about a target range or a target area and you're getting a bunch of those similar comparisons and similar range, you definitely have to listen to that. So you can't be stubborn. You can't stick to your evaluation. So you kind of have to listen to that. Now, does it mean that it's right? Absolutely not. You're still going to stick to your guns and trust what you see with your eyes and where you have a guy pegged at as far as where they go. But when we're talking about the, the draft day and then it, trying to predict where guys are going to go. If they're telling you that a guy is going to go, you know, top 15, top 20, and you're getting an overwhelming number of answers in that range, you definitely have to listen. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that's where it's like, you can't go off like one or two, but you got to like listen to as many as you can, I guess. But on the other hand, like you said, it's, it's an interesting balance between trusting your own gut and when you're listening to, to the other people. Um, all right. So just to sort of wrap it up with quarterbacks. Yes. One way or the other, I don't imagine that Washington people are going to say that Washington has solved their quarterback problem. No, no disregard to Taylor Heineke. We're talking um, ahead of the Dallas game in this podcast. Probably I'll, I'll probably run it after the Dallas game this week. So maybe Taylor Heineke turns into John Elway on Sunday. We'll see. But I'm going to assume that probably one way or the other, he will. The Washington will be in position to figure out um, to have to figure out whether they want to draft a quarterback or not. Um, we don't know where they'll they'll be picking. You know, the, right now they're around 19, but that could that could number could easily fall, you know, rise or, or or fall depending on what happens. Um, regardless of where they pick or any one of these quarterbacks, when you see what Washington likes to do with Scott Turner motion offense, you see the pieces they have in Terry McLaurin in particular. Any one of these quarterbacks, you say this is the guy. If Washington is fortunate enough to have their choice, this is the quarterback for them to get. Yeah, there's two of them, and it's Matt Corral, who I had him projected as taking. In my first mock draft, I really like Corral, and he's going to be my QB1 when I come out with my latest rankings. I really like him a lot as far as a quick, fluid throwing motion. He really expedited his development this year in Lane Kiffin's offense, and, you know, he struggled with turnovers last year. That was the big thing about him as a redshirt sophomore. He actually had 11 in two games alone. He had six against Arkansas, threw six interceptions in that game, and then five against LSU, and that number has reduced all the way down to four this year total so he's done a really good job of taking care of the football just a supreme operator he can create inside and outside of structure too so he's a player that's really unlocked the next step or the next stage of his development and then Malik Willis I think is another player that I think they could entertain probably somewhere in the top 25 which is where their pick may end up uh, being projected that's assuming that they don't uh, go on to win the Super Bowl which would be a miraculous run but (laughs) 
the great thing about having Heineke in your back pocket already is that you have high quality insurance as far as a backup, if that's what you want with him. You don't have to ease a quarterback into starting just because I don't think Willis is going to be ready walking through the door day one just because he's so raw. And his, his projection really reminds me a lot of Josh Allen coming out. And that's not to say he's going to end up being the player that Josh Allen has turned into. But as far as, you know, not having a lot of help on the roster, really struggling with his completion percentage. And then everybody putting so much weight on that one game on his resume. We saw with Josh Allen in 2017 when they played Iowa of how he struggled in that game. And people were kind of down on him after that with Malik Willis. His big game was against Ole Miss when they went down there to Oxford and play in that game. And he didn't play well for the most part in that game. So I think the draft projections and resumes and portfolios are very similar. So uh, I think you probably can get Malik Willis probably in that 15 to 25 range. I think right now that's where he's going to end up going. But the great thing, once again, for Washington, they have that high quality insurance and that guy like a Taylor Heineke to where you don't have to pressure him into playing year one. Um, and apologies, my phone. I, you know, I haven't done this podcast <laughs> a while. I left my phone on. Um, um, so lastly, so let's just say we're all sort of going with the idea of Washington takes a quarterback. Look, it, 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 right now they're in position to make the playoffs. And if they keep going, maybe they're like, hey, we do have something here in Taylor Heineke, or at least we have enough to get by for now. Maybe they go later. Is there somebody in the later rounds? You mentioned Desmond Ritter. We'll see. Maybe he goes in round two. But is there somebody, whether it's round two, round three, or even later, that you're like, you know, keep an eye on this guy, that maybe there's some tools there that, you know, we'll see what happens in the in this offseason, uh, the workouts and things, or maybe just get to, get to with some uh, pro- pro- professional coaching could be somebody of interest. Any, uh, obviously, they're long shots, but any one of those guys stand out? Yeah, you're going to think I'm making up a fake name here, but his name is Bailey Zappi from Western Kentucky. And my my colleague Mel, K- Mel Kuyper likes to say Zip It Zappi. That's what he calls him. That's his nickname. But he's a player that has had an outstanding year. He actually started his career at Houston Baptist, a small school from 2018 to 2020. And then he played in 78, or excuse me, he played in 36 career games, had 78 touchdowns prior to transferring to Western Kentucky. And he actually led the FBS in touchdown passes this year with over 52. So he had, he has supreme amount of production and he's that player. That's kind of like Heineke, a bit undersized at about six foot, 220 pounds, but he just loves to sling the football around. He has that charisma and just that belief about him whenever he's on the field. So he has a similar, as far as gravitational and magnetic force with his personality and belief and being able to galvanize a locker room as Heineke had when he was an undrafted guy um, coming out of old dominion and just putting up ridiculous numbers uh, similar to Heineke and he and you know coincidentally enough Heineke was actually the comparison that I wrote down when I was studying him so if they do take a chance on a guy in like the fourth round I think that's probably where he'll end up going and he's already he's already accepted his invitation to the senior bowl so once again he'll be he'll be beside some of those other guys that we've been talking about a little bit earlier so it'll be interesting to see how he stacks up so keep an eye on Bailey Zappi from Western Kentucky I mean that's where Taylor Heineke's come he's now the guy getting com- people are comparing to him literally yesterday one year ago is when he was signed to Washington's practice squad officially and people are like well who what you know I mean you know college football fans knew but other than that nobody knew now here we go um Taylor Heineke he's the guy that people say oh could be another Taylor Heineke what a world um and that's how far we've come since we started doing this uh having this conversation about having you come on Jordan it was a pleasure I really appreciate it uh, go read Jordan on ESPN. You might have heard of that outlet. Go read that. Go read him there. He's on Twitter at Jordan underscore read R E I D. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Hopefully, uh, maybe we can talk again before the draft. Absolutely. Thanks as always, Ben. It was a pleasure. All right. 
Many thanks to Jordan Reed from ESPN and Matt Paris from the Washington Times for their for their time. Again, I'll be back later this week with another podcast looking at the Eagles and the NFC. And if you want to uh, go back and listen, I had a really fun conversation with Grant Paulson after the Dallas Cowboys game. So you can check that out as well. Um, the, it's already a crazy week. And, and, you know, I don't think I don't know if I mentioned this earlier. Maybe I did. But, you know, it's now been four days in a row that Washington has had a player uh, added to the to the COVID list. So this thing isn't over yet. Or at least it, could be, it may not be over yet. We'll see about that. We'll be back out of practice tomorrow. But, uh, you know, it's going to be virtual press conferences at this point. So uh, we're back to that world at this point. Um, anyway, that's it for now. Ben Standick signing off. Until next time. See ya.